Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need support from women who totally understand, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a session today. One simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click, follow, or subscribe to the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating helps make this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that will make this type of abuse worse. For those of you who follow or subscribe to this podcast, thank you so much. Your support means so much to me. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing Andrea Hips. She's a licensed social worker and is a certified divorce coach who helps parents all along the divorce continuum resolve their divorce debris and create beautiful two-address families for their kids. Wow, that sounds like a magic, magical land. So I'm excited to talk to you today, Andrea. Andrea is also the author of the international best-selling book, The Worst Time of Your Life, Four Practices to Get You Through the Pain of Divorce, which outlines four practices you need to create wholeness and healing for you and your kids before, during, and after divorce. As a regular contributor to our nation's divorce recovery conversation, she's been featured on NBC, ABC, Fox, and The CW discussing how we can do divorce better for the sake of ourselves and our families. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me here. Andrea had me on her Divorce Differently Summit series, so I was able to speak at her event, and we really connected, and I was so grateful to meet her, and I'm grateful for all of the work that she does and the people that she helps throughout the world. Let's talk about your book. Your book is titled The Best Worst Time of Your Life, Four Practices to Get You Through the Pain of Divorce. Talk about why you titled it that. (laughs) Because most people, I think, heading into divorce and who are in divorce would call it the worst time of their life. Just the amount of catastrophe and undoing and falling apart feels just entirely overwhelming. And then as they move through, and sometimes a year later or years later, they will look back and in fact call it the best worst time of their life. Meaning what they went through shaped them in some meaningful way that likely couldn't have happened without all of that catastrophe. I don't know if I'd call it the best worst. I mean, no offense to the title of your book. I think I'd call it like the the worst time that helped me grow or something. Yeah, right. And that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's the best thing that happened to make me who I am today. I wouldn't choose it. I don't want it. I would have avoided it if I could, but it created results in me that I treasure. For me, it's been seven years and now I feel that way. I've learned so much the hard way, the hard way. I'm always learning things the hard way. I don't think there's any other way. (laughs) 
There is no other way. I was recently talking to a friend and I had given her some divorce coaching. She didn't really listen to it, which was fine. Like she can do what she wants. And then she found herself like, oh, why didn't I do that? I didn't think that my situation rose to the level of those extremes that I thought you were talking about. But now I wish I had done that. And I'm thinking all of us did that, right? We all thought, no, 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 I can handle it or I can do it this way and I'll be fine because my ex is like this or whatever. And we didn't really understand the situation or we didn't really understand the consequences. And then we were stuck with them and now we all know better, but we all know better too late. It's almost like if we could go back in time, we would do it all better. So maybe on our second divorce, we'll do awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I think on the front end, you really don't have an understanding of who your spouse is. And as you move through divorce, you uncover truths that you either previously weren't aware of or that come to light in new ways. And especially when abuse is involved, it can be particularly devastating, especially on your ability to cope through the sort of trail of crazy that the legal process of divorce will throw at you. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think everyone listening to this podcast understands that they're in a relationship with an abusive man. That's who this podcast is for. But I think the divorce process really helps women understand the level of abuse that they're experiencing, which my opinion is way more extreme than they ever realized. And that's why it's so devastating. And because they're not aware of how abusive the person is, they're not really prepared. They don't practice strategic ways of dealing with an abuser beforehand because they don't know they need to do it until they've tried all the other things. And they're like, whoa, 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 this is really, really bad. And that's hard. I always want to find some way of helping victims avoid the process of learning that. But I don't think there is any other way to learn it other than trial and error. You think, no, I'll be able to deal with this person rationally. And then you realize later, I couldn't. But in order to jump the gun on that, you have to know, wow, I'm not going to be able to deal with them rationally. Nobody jumps from zero to 20 on the, this person is a really scary, scary person scale, unless they've had a lot of experience with that person. Right. And so much of that is encountering the reality of it. I think some of that exists sort of experientially in your day-to-day -day life with an abuser. The volume gets turned way up when you put threats like finances kids and control into the story. And so what you're talking about trying to avoid the path through, it's exactly that. You can't change the way you address reality until you're looking at it. And to look at it is so exquisitely painful. And so then when you get in it, you can start to get creative. But so much of our creativity gets blocked by the trauma itself. And so when you talk about that process of being seven years out now, it makes a lot of sense that when abuse is part of the storyline, that your recovery is going to stretch far longer than the sort of typical three or four years that a person without abuse in their story would be dealing with. Especially when you share kids. Especially. The kid part is so hard because you are continually being abused through the divorce process and then after your divorce. So then it's learning how to deal with the abuse post-divorce, which is so, so hard. 
So in your book, you're talking about the four practices to get you through the pain of divorce. What practice holds the most meaning for you? The practice that I resonate most with as a person who went through her own divorce over a decade ago is the one related to rising above. And when we talk about rising above, it isn't sort of this, oh, I'm just in an elevated space and I can handle this and my capacity is so expanded because now I'm sort of facing my abuse and getting the divorce that this abuse led to and I'm so empowered. It has nothing to do with that. Rising above has a lot less to do with your former partner and the role that they played in the divorce. It has a lot to do with who you are going to become as a result of what you're going through. And specifically when I think about it, it's about learning how to understand, state, and know what your values are and be able to live from and express them regardless of what your former partner is going to do to block those. Does that make sense? Meaning it has more to do with you because he's going to try and like stop you from growing. Is that kind of what you're saying? But you can grow anyway. I'm saying he's going to be who he's going to be anyway. And what are you going to become as a result? Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the whole point of learning how to deal with abuse? Like the facing it, knowing radical acceptance. He is who he is. One of the biggest parts of divorce is carving out who you are separate and apart from what this marriage was. And that can be particularly sticky when you have an abuser who is constantly trying to insert themselves in what it looks like for you to have a life. And so when we talk about rising above, it's really being able to step back from the situation, which in itself is hard, and be able to identify what are the values that I'm choosing to live from, regardless of the route that he is going to take to undo and undermine and make very difficult my healing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting that you say that because that's the exact same parallel path. It's not just related to divorce, but it's also just related to abuse recovery in general. Moving forward with the life that you want to create, regardless of what he's doing or what he's choosing to do. And so you are helping women do this through their divorce. I'm intersecting with people prior to their divorce to sort of discern whether or not they can pull it off in the midst of their divorce, and even five and 10 years after their divorce to sort of resolve their divorce debris. And so when you talk about this idea of carving out who we are, it's a very different approach than the the years that we invested in marriage, right? The years that we're investing in marriage are very much a we. It's just a we. We're always thinking about the we. Even if that we is filled with abuse, we're still thinking, how can I make this we better? And to really go through divorce well is to be able to separate in a way that starts to really only consider me. And that can feel like a big jump for people at first, right? This idea of, well, how is that going to work if I just, it sounds selfish. It sounds a little myopic in the way you're thinking about it. But when we pull into what is best for me, we start to get a lot more creative about the activities that we're going to undertake to get through this really painful experience of divorce. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the thing I was trying to say is divorce is the medium in which you're using to move from the we to the me in this case. And then just in abuse recovery in general, let's pretend for a minute that you weren't going to get divorced. You would still move from a we to a me place. And so it mimics that same pattern 
regardless, and you as a divorce coach are using divorce as the medium to be able to do that. And it's a, it's the perfect one. And other women sometimes choose other routes, but the whole point of abuse recovery and healing is to find your voice, find the kind of life that you want and start making your way toward that life. And divorce is a great way to do that. In some cases, it's the only way to do that. Yeah. And Richard Rohr talks about falling upward. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that book, but he talks about the second half of life. And the second half of life is not necessarily starting your 50s. It starts when you are met with a situation that your will or your ego cannot fix, right? When you get in an abusive situation, your will, you're simply, you this sort of don't do this, right? That's not going to work. When you enter into a situation where your will and your ego cannot overcome it, you get an invitation into the second half of life. And the second half of life is where we're no longer operating in the structures that made sense for everybody else. And I think that's a unique, um, it's a unique part of being a person who is moving through divorce with an abuser. You don't get to do it the way everybody else does. You don't get to live the way everybody else does. You don't get the same joys that everybody else does. You get them differently and you get them with a considerable amount of effort on your part to become a me. And so, so this idea of moving into the second half of life is really going, I'm going to have to grow up and adult in ways that sometimes seem unfair because not everybody else has to do it and it's not as hard for them, but it's still the most necessary part of what it means to be a free, full individual. Yeah. It's sort of like finding your independence for the first time, but as a 45 year old. Yeah. That's a big deal. You've lived 45 years in this different way. And this is going to be a totally different way of perceiving the world, of interacting with the world. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a breaking and a remaking. And I think some people resist it because they don't think it should be happening and it shouldn't have to happen. But the truth is anybody who's gone on any kind of meaningful spiritual adventure has this sort of breaking and remaking moment. And like you said before, for some people, it centers around divorce. For other people, it's around an injury. For other people, it's around a grief or a loss. Whatever it is, you get a portal you get an entry point and you'll get several, you'll get several chances in life to take the portal into this space, this very different space where you learn how to become the kind of person who actually can handle far more than you realized, who can get comfortable with other people being completely off the rails and handling yourself in it. It really is a miracle, at least with my own personal story, when I look back and think about (laughs) The times where I just, I knew I could not handle it. I knew I couldn't, you know, in my gut, in my soul, it was just like, this is too much. This is too hard. I shouldn't have to do this. Why am I being forced to do it? And now looking back and thinking, I did handle it. Like even in those moments where I just knew I couldn't, now I'm like, I was, I was. And same thing with all of our listeners. You are doing it. It might not feel like it. You might feel terrible. You're taking one small step at a time. And when you look back, you'll realize, wait, I survived. Like I did handle that. And even if it feels like you're not currently doing that. And uh, I, there are so many times where I wasn't doing it well, right? I was doing it very, very badly. Yeah. But you know, we, we have an imagination though, that handling it looks like 
I got my nails and my hair done and I'm in a great outfit and I got a good attitude about it. That's not what handling it looks like, right? None of us have made it through the darkest moments of our lives looking like we were handling it. What handling it looks like is allowing the complete destruction of what was. And that's really hard for people. We resist that because it shouldn't be that way. We don't want it to have to be that way. So therefore it shouldn't have to be that way. But handling it has a lot more to do with surrendering to the fact that it's going to happen anyway. And how do I start aligning myself with the fact that for better or worse, I actually will make it through. (laughs) And who do I want to be as I do it? Mm -hmm. I like it when you said this shouldn't be happening. I don't want it to happen. The same friend I was talking to, she said, this doesn't happen in real life movies right they resolve in the end and it feels like with people that you can you know have a conversation and everything can go okay or at least you can make some reasonable agreement it feels almost like you're disembodied or you're watching yourself from far away and thinking wait 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 this cannot be happening and then realizing that it is happening is that radical acceptance piece, like it is happening, that I think it's just so hard for us to wrap our heads around. I'm guessing that's probably why a lot of women don't prepare or don't get a lot of information that they need beforehand, and then they're struggling throughout their divorce. Mm -hmm. And you know, that resistance of it shouldn't be this way, resistance is always just exposing to us what we value. And it's a soft way of approaching yourself in that, right? Because we can sit and we can throw this tantrum, which we all do. I've done it. You've done it. Of It shouldn't be this way. I don't want it to be this way. But when we look at why do we resist it being this way, it usually exposes some value for us. And when we can pull that back into sort of what we were talking about at the beginning, this idea of a values-based living, I'm going to live from that value even if it doesn't seem to be apparent in my life right now. So for example, if I resist that my whole life is falling apart and that I am in a relationship with an abuser right now and that I have to get a divorce, I resist that happening. Well, what is my resistance telling me that I value? Well, up until now, I really valued family. I really valued safety. I really valued connectedness. And it seems like those things are now going away. And the invitation of divorce, or at least, you know, divorce with purpose is to go, how do I carry those values forward with me, regardless of the fact that my former former partner can't make those happen with me? How can I still value a sense of connectedness and a sense of family and make that happen for me and for my children, even when it's not going to happen in the context of what I believe is typical for everybody else? You saying that reminds me of something that I thought was really important, and that was putting Christmas lights up. So even just a little simple thing, or it's not simple, I couldn't figure out how to put them up. But I thought like, to me, having Christmas lights on the outside of my house for my kids means I care about my family. I care about Christmas. I'm going to continue to uphold traditions that I had before. But how in the world do I get these things on my house? Right. This was kind of overwhelming. And so I hired someone in the neighborhood, like a kid in the neighborhood, and I paid him 20 bucks and he put my Christmas lights up. And when they were up, I just felt like, okay, I'm still living this value that I thought I had to depend on someone else for. I thought I needed a husband in order to put Christmas lights up. Hopefully a husband is way more useful than just putting Christmas lights up. But anyway, overcoming that and then overcoming the next thing. Maybe it's mowing the lawn or overcoming the next thing. Maybe it's a family reunion. I don't know what that next thing is, but just one thing at a time. And then now, seven years later, Christmas lights are not that important to me. But at the time, that just that was a symbol of something. And so that's one thing I want 
women to think of too is you might be putting a lot of value on something like Christmas lights thinking I have to do this thing this thing really matters but it's too hard or it's too expensive and like I like what you said taking a step back and maybe realizing what is the metaphor here and even if I can't afford to pay someone in my neighborhood to put the Christmas lights up is there something else I can do to feel like I'm supporting my family and I have these family values through Christmas, right? Which of course, obviously would be spending more time with my kids or doing something actually meaningful rather than the Christmas lights. But um, I think always taking that step back and realizing what your base motivation is, is always a good step for how to take the next step forward because there are going to be things that we cannot do. We're not super people. And so through divorce, there's going to be maybe things we're not able to do that we want to do that we think are like the epitome of what our values are. But being able to be creative, we can sort of roll with the punches and continue to keep our values, even if it doesn't look the way that we thought it should look originally. Right. And that's the the sort of the knee-jerk response, which is to look at the activity. Well, we can't do the things we used to do because of this, you know, explosion in our life. And what your encouragement seems to be is, and mine as well, how do we step back and go, okay, there's a value behind this activity. How do I tweak the activity to match what my life looks like now so that I can preserve that value? Even though I may have lost the exact tradition or the exact way of doing it, I will still communicate the value to my people, which is really very essence-based. We want to get at the essence of, okay, well, the holidays look really different. The essence of the holidays for me meant time as a family. Okay, well, what does that mean when I have 50% time or when I have, when I have time that I, where I just feel kind of wrecked? Then I'm going to start getting creative about what does it mean to have time with family as opposed to needing to shove it into the old way of how it always used to look. Because when we keep trying to shove ourselves back into what was, we're not meeting reality. My go-to definition of healing is aligning yourself with reality. So when we can align ourselves with reality and start looking at what does life really look like now and how do I keep these values alive and be open to a different expression of them, that's where joy can start to enter again. And a lot of the things that I thought were super important, the metaphors, I guess, the Christmas lights or whatever, when it really got down to it, they were actually quite hollow. Spending time with my kids in a different way was way more important. And that is a post-traumatic like growth that I've learned finally after I gave up worrying about the Christmas lights. <laughs> we're going to pause the conversation here and Andrea is going to join me again next week. So stay tuned. If this podcast is helpful to you, please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping other women find us. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon, and rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on support the BTR podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.